It was a very cruel scene. Executed in an unusual manner. Hey, Quill Coven. Hey, Heartbreakers. Dream Makers. (laughs) My name is Tori. Oh, that was rough. (laughs) I'm Katie, and this is Cruel and Unusual. The podcast. Welcome to it. You're back again. Here we are. Part two of the Krista Worthington case. You guys, we are just going to get right into it this episode. We are. We're going to do a quick question of the day slash week. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do articles this time because we have a lot to get into. You have a lot to get into, and I have a lot to, you know, add my two cents to. <laughs> so, Always needed. Is it two cents or ten cents? Here's my ten cents. My, my two, two cents, cents is free. free. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, we're just going to do the question. What is it? Um, what is it? Uh, what, tell me. Ask me the Q-O-T-D-W, Katie. Okay. This one is just from me. Okay. Oh, okay. If aliens landed on Earth tomorrow and offered to take you home with them, would you go? If I could bring Nora, Yeah. I was going to say, there. I'm going to have a lot of questions for these aliens. Yeah. I want to know where we're going. Where are we going? If I'm going to be your ride or die, I need to know where we're going. I think that they only speak in a different language. Well, how would they, how would I know? How would I they, think they ask would me just, that? I think they would just point at you. Yeah. And you know what? Fuck thing. it. I'm going. <laughs> that, that's, in these that's times, all. you know, I'm in on these my way. times, I'll bring the fam. Sure. Yeah. I'm just going to grab Nora and we're going to go. Mm-hmm. I think that it would be very scary. Oh, yeah. But you know what? Who cares? Who cares <laughs> anymore? Uh, honestly? Honestly, truly, sincerely. Sincerely. Um, I kind of want to do an episode about Roswell. Okay, do Should it. Should I? Is that something you all would like? I would like it. Tell me. Should we talk about the aliens? <laughs> you guys, we've lost our fucking minds. <laughs> we, we have been recording for the better part of three hours. Yeah. And... Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. And you guys, that's going to have to be fucking good enough. But okay, Mm -hmm. we are going to get right into part two because we have a lot more about this case to unpack. There's a lot more to explore. I like your rhyming. Sock it to me, Tor. (laughs) You're on a roll. (laughs) Real quick disclaimer. If you have not listened to part one of the Krista Worthington case, Please do so before you listen to this. Yeah, it'll be mighty helpful. Mighty helpful. So hopefully part one, because I know you listened to it, explains like the background. Mm -hmm. So you guys are clear going into this ground. Yeah. Okay, so on New Year's Day of 2002, Krista Worthington loaned Tim Arnold one of her flashlights when he was walking home to his house. I was wondering why he needed a flashlight yes, so that, badly. That is exactly But, why. I mean, that's a legit reason, I would say. Truly. In the woods, there's wild clams and shit. In Cape Cod, I bet there I are. I mean, Tim then... Okay, so after this happened, Tim was house-sitting at a home in Wellfleet until January 6th of 2002. And on January 6th, Robert, Tim's dad, went to that home in Wellfleet and picked him up. And he brought him back to his home so they could watch the Patriots game together. And so Tim could do all of his laundry. And then the plan was to bring him back. So I guess he was going to house it for two weeks. I don't know. Sure. I don't know the I don't know the logistics. Mm-hmm. Tim had actually reached out earlier in the week to Krista to see if she wanted to do something on that Sunday, the 6th. And Krista didn't feel like planning anything. Mm-hmm. So they just simply didn't. I was going to say, she probably told him no. Yeah. <laughs> she just wasn't into it. She just wasn't into it. She wasn't. Tim called her that Sunday on the 6th, but there was no answer. He just assumed that Krista was back at it again, playing the whole avoidance game, which was normal for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did kind of tell him, like, stop coming over. You know? She did. She did. Tim actually had a journal, and he confessed in the journal that it was frustrating that she did that to him. That she was so kind of, like, wishy-washy and noncommittal at some points, mm-hmm. at some times, and that it was like pulling teeth in order to see her, even as a friend, not as a romantic partner. This was in his journal. Yeah. He wanted to be part of Ava's life still, and he considered her like a child to him. And he was just overall irritated with Krista's lack of communication with him or with what he felt 
was lack of communication. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm on I'm on Krista's side because because that's not she doesn't his child. owe him anything. They dated for six months. Yeah, you know, I get that you would get close to a child, but right. that doesn't you're not owed anything. No. So on that day, Jan- Sunday, January 6th of 2002, Robert was going to bring Tim back to Wellfleet, and that is when Tim decided he needed to bring the flashlight back to Krista. Part of me is just like he just wanted any excuse to see her. For sure. Because why would you need to bring a flashlight then? Mm-hmm. There's, like, it's not that important. It. Right. Yeah. So Robert drove Tim up the long, winding, clamshell driveway. And if you remember, in the very beginning of part one, I described a bit about that scene as Tim walked into the house. Mm -hmm. There were two newspapers on the driveway. He went inside. He was calling Krista's name. And he ended up finding her deceased on the floor with Ava next to her. And that is where I initially left you in part one, was with Tim picking Ava up, spelling out the word dead, And then Krista's cousin, Jan, the first EMT to arrive on the scene. Yeah. Meredith Allen was the first police officer on the scene, second only to the EMTs. She noticed that a brown blanket and some kind of yellow covering type of thing from the ambulance, I guess they had some kind of cover, Mm -hmm. was draped over Krista's body, which is obviously a huge no-no. So the EMTs did that? Yeah. Okay. The crime scene investigators did not come onto a scene that was fresh, untouched, undisturbed. The scene was very, very, very disturbed. Right, right. And you would think that they would realize right away that it was a homicide. Exactly. You know? You would definitely think so. Now, I don't know if it's an an excuse Mm -hmm. to say that the last homicide or death that there was was 30 years ago. Because you would think that they would still be trained Right. Yeah. But that might have been a played a role. In right. It. it wasn't something that they saw all the time. Not that it made it right. Yeah. But typically it's nice to keep the amount of people entering a crime scene on the lower end of the scale. Mm-hmm. But in this case, there were 14 names on the crime log. Oh, wow. This doesn't even include the EMTs. They weren't on the log. Defense attorney, which we'll get into later, Robert George, said that there were between 20 and 25 people at the crime scene, which is just... Do you think they were being looky-loos? Maybe. Because it doesn't happen there? And it's a small town. So maybe there were two EMTs or two police officers. Yeah. And then once they all found out, they all all went? That's like half the fucking town right there. Shit. Right. Wow. Okay. Krista was found wearing a fleece jacket, fleece vest, and black long sleeve shirt. She wasn't wearing anything on her bottom half. Jan Worthington and Tim Arnold both said that they saw her in a green bathrobe, too. Two paramedics said yes, that was true. They backed up those stories. Before being covered with the brown blanket and the yellow, like, tarp-looking thing, she was wearing a green robe. But it's not in the crime scene photos. Where did it go? There was never an excuse for this. It was not in her home. It was literally nowhere. If... Her daughter was nursing on her. How would she get through, like, the jacket? You said there was, like, a vest and a jacket? Yeah, I'm not really exactly sure about that, but it was said that the green robe was, like, pushed away. I was going to say it'd be easier to nurse in a robe. Exactly. I don't know. But, like, a jacket and stuff? Right. I don't... You would think the kid wouldn't be able to, even at two and a half, get to the breast. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I did not really understand that part. Mm -hmm. And if you you remember the 911 call... Tim did say she was nursing. Right. We don't know for sure if that's what was happening. I know he was very, like, jolted. Right. You know. So there was never an excuse for where that green bathrobe went. So, like I said, Krista was naked from the waist down. It's also noted that there was a pool of dried blood beneath her head. She was stabbed exactly one time, and the knife blade went into the planks of the floor. Ava's footprints, bloody footprints, were all over the house. Mm. A children's broom with blood on it was found. Was she trying to clean it up? She was trying to clean her up. Oh, my God. There was also a step stool and a rag by the bathroom sink with blood on it. Uh. It said that Ava was trying to clean it. Like, she tried to give, she tried to get the the washcloth damp and then wipe her off. Oh, my God. And then she tried to give her water from her sippy cup. Mm. She ended up laying down and trying to nurse from her reportedly. 
It's estimated that she was with her mother's deceased body for between 24 and 36 hours. Oh, my God. Yes, because by the time investigators got there, by the time Tim found her, yeah. rigor mortis was already setting in. That poor baby. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't think it was that long. Yes. Between Holy shit. Between 24 and 36 hours. Oh, my God. Can you imagine how traumatized? Even being two and a half, your mother is laying there and won't wake up. That's not normal. You right. know that that's not normal. And your needs are not There's being met by anyone because there's nobody else there mm -hmm. there's Ugh. blood all over the place and she might not know she might not have known that that was blood but she would know that that's not normal right you know Ugh. which is why she was trying to clean it up crime scene investigators collected nine fingerprints from around her body and by her car her cell phone was found with a nine punched in it eyeglasses and one sock were near her car and in the other sock the match and a red wrapper and a barrette was by the flower bed and all of that i feel like who knows like my there could be a barrette outside my house there could mm -hmm. be a sock you know <laughs> yeah but there were also two parallel drag marks by her car oh okay which I thought was a little bit strange. Yeah. And then her keys were by her car. looked like they had been ran over, which could have been like an ambulance or a whatever. But that yeah. I just thought that was kind of weird that her keys were out there too. The crime scene investigators clipped her fingernails and sent those off to the crime lab. She was also swabbed for DNA. Blue and white fibers were collected. And unidentified male DNA was found on two places on her body and the brown blanket that covered her at the scene. EMT George Malloy spent some time with Ava after taking her from the scene and bringing her down the road to the first house with lights on, mm. which like would never happen today. Probably which, not. That no. was only in 2002. Right. Yeah. But I think also the whole small town thing. Right. You know, everyone knows everyone. It could have been their, the EMT's grandma or something. Exactly. You know. And who it turned out to be was Krista's uncle, oh, Jan, see? Jan Worthington's dad. Yeah. Okay. Ava was not saying much or well. Yeah. But she did get out. Mommy was laying down and wouldn't get up. Mm. Mommy dirty. Tried to clean mommy. And George said that there were hundreds of blisters on Ava's bum. Like around uh, around her bum from her diaper not being changed. Yeah. For Aww. 24 to 36 hours or maybe longer. Yeah. It wasn't known if she saw her mother murdered or not. She didn't say that she was there. It was clear that she was in the home. Yeah. But was she sleeping? Was she napping? Was It depends on the time. A specialist ended up speaking to Ava, and the specialist believes that she did not see the murder happen, but you can't know for sure. Right. Either late Friday night or early Saturday morning is what they believe the time would have been that, that Krista was killed. So now, I want to talk about suspects. Authorities were looking at each suspect that they had right off the bat very carefully and checking to see if they had alibis for both Friday and Saturday. So they needed to look into basically the entire weekend. Right. Since an actual concrete time of death wasn't known. Suspect number one is Tim Arnold, obviously, the mm -hmm. jaded lover who found her. Now, was he house sitting alone? I believe so, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Because that's, that's where he would have been when it happened then. Yes. So he would, have, he would have technically, yes, he would have been in Wellfleet at that house that he was sitting for. But if and there I, was no one there, how do you, you know? And I think part of his alibi was the fact that he can't drive. I was just going to say that. Yeah. There are, are other ways. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think I don't you know. can totally count him out just right. because he can't drive. Exactly. And it actually ended up being his DNA on the brown blanket. Oh, but okay. he was close. He was an ex. He had lived there. Yeah. Um. Also, he was known to show up in the home unannounced. Mm -hmm. Um. He found the body. Police were like, of all days, why did you bring the flashlight today? Right. Like all of this kind of stuff is adding up to be strange. Yeah. Tim's own father, Robert, asked him if he did it when he got home. Wow. Yeah. One question. His own though. father. Do you think that he would have left Ava there, though, That's, for that many days? Because it seems like he cared about her. That is my main thing Yeah, with that and with something else. Although, if you can kill, what's going to stop you from leaving a, a baby neglected? Yeah. I don't you know. Never, I don't know. know. Police found out that Tim had adults ADD, 
or ADHD, and that he was seeing a therapist. He was prescribed Effexor and Remarin. I think I'm saying that wrong, but they were they're basically two antidepressants, mm-hmm. and he was on those daily. Just prior to Thanksgiving, Tim had called Krista seven times in one day oh. and left seven voicemails. Oh, do and we going, know what about? I'm going to play those right now. Okay. I think I'm going to head back over to Wellfleet. I'm not particularly comfortable here with this nonstop stream of, of stuff. So, uh, not that it matters much, but I hope you had a nice day. Bye. Hi. Just calling to check and see if you have plans for the night yet. Bye. Wow, okay, so it definitely sounds like he's trying to manipulate her into contacting him. Clearly. Definitely. And have <laughs> like what oh, it reminded we're me. We're done. Of. Don't yeah. contact me and I yeah, you know, yeah, that's exactly what he wants. What it reminded me of was like a high school relationship. Oh yeah. And your boyfriend is like mad at you and, and but he and he calls you and he's like, I'm done. I'm mm-hmm. through with you. And then he calls you back like five minutes later, like, but don't fuck anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like oh, and, but yeah. I forgot to say this, yeah. you know, like, no, no, you, you just said you're done. Then why do you care if you're you trying to, to say, initiate you know? a conversation? Ugh, I didn't like that. Uh-huh. All of those voicemails just left a very sour taste. Like the mouth. first couple were like, okay, that's a little normal. Like, hey, you want to get tell- coffee if you're up? Right. And but then it gets tell- worse. Right. He was like. Hey, Krista. And then he's like, I see where I, you know what I mean? Like Uh totally different person. Read the room, Tim. Right. I don't think she wants to talk to you. She's not calling you back, Tim. Wow. So the only thing that was like stopping investigators from being like, wow, the suit's a creep. We're going to like pursue him Mm -hmm. was the fact that he had a fairly solid alibi of being in Wellfleet house sitting Mm -hmm. and not being able to drive. Yeah. So that was, that was really all that they had to go off of for that. Yeah. Tim said that early Friday morning, he walked the dog. He got coffee at high toss in Wellfleet. He went back to the house. He painted until 10 AM, went to the library, went to lunch and he spent his day writing and painting and went to bed at 10. He was an artist. That was what he did for work. Yeah. That was Friday. That was Friday. And when did they think she was murdered? Either Friday or Saturday. On Saturday, he said that he walked the dog. He got the coffee. He wrote, he worked, he painted. On Sunday, he got up around 630. He took the dog for a walk. He went back to bed until 10. He went to high toss, got a coffee. He had breakfast and the coffee. He went back to the house that he was house sitting at to like kind of like gather up his laundry. Robert then picked him up so we could go back to Robert's house to do his laundry and watch that Patriots game that was on at their house in Tarot. Okay. He called Krista just before 2 and then again at 4.01 p.m. just before going over there to give her the flashlight. Police questioned him the day that he found Krista's dead body. And then again, they questioned him that June when they asked to see his electronics and his computers and his journals. Mm. 
He turned them over willingly, but he called an attorney the next day. The attorney told police that he was not to be questioned without him. Tim actually called the police back only a few days later, and he asked to speak to a detective on Chris's case. He said that he forgot something and that he wanted to tell them that if they find his fingerprints outside of Krista's window, that he was going for a jog, and he stopped on his way home. He knocked. There was no answer. He walked around to her bedroom door to look in. Okay. She, mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Even if he didn't do it, that's... Not right. That's crossing the boundary. Yeah. Right. Behavior. And I don't like that. And obviously this like this signaled alarm bells to police, but yeah. he couldn't be placed at the scene over that weekend. So Tim ends up finding out that he's a main suspect at first and he flips. He calls authorities to find out why he's a main suspect. He then calls the therapist. The therapist advises him to go to the emergency room. So there was clearly like more things going on there. Yeah, it was definitely adding up for him. Right. He was transferred from the emergency room to the psych ward, and it was determined that he was having a mental breakdown. Police decided to interview him again, though, during this time. Is that the best time? Yeah, without his lawyer. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed Tim for three hours. Police informed him that they went through all of his electronics and his journals and said that they felt like he was in love with Krista and that he was hung up on her, and that gives him a motive. Okay, well, he definitely was. uh... Tim was like, I'm not capable of kicking in the door to her house because it was it was kicked in or a jar or there was something going on with the door. Mm -hmm. And the cops were like, how do you know that it was kicked in? And Tim had said originally he didn't notice anything was wrong. And even seeing her laying there, he didn't notice. But he thought he saw a footprint on the door. Or he said, maybe an EMT at the scene told me. Police thought that that was weird. The whole thing was weird. And that he would have definitely been capable of kicking a door in. He was a, a big, he was a tall, yeah, grown, fully grown man. Right. Like any, uh, what? You know? Tim was done talking, though, at that point without his lawyer. He was transferred to a more secure facility after declining even more. Another set of suspects are Tony and Susan Jacket. Tony, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Okay. Tony told the media that, quote, when I told her, meaning Susan, the news, she was in a state of shock, Tony Jacket said. She said, okay, what I want you to do is you're going to go down the hall and stay in that bedroom until I figure out what to do with you. And I remember thinking, all right, okay, so I go and I'll get that out of the way. I never left. I was never kicked out of the house, end quote. After the huge blowout when Tony told Susan that he had been having a long-term affair and that he had a child with that affair E, Susan ended up deciding to stay with Tony, as we found out in part one. The two of them decided to go to therapy together, which was probably needed, Mm -hmm. and according to Massachusetts State Trooper Christopher Mason, who was an investigator on Krista Worthington's case, Tony had told him that after he told Susan the truth about everything, Krista gave him ample amount of time to work on his marriage with Susan. After he put Ava onto his health insurance, she dropped her lawyer. There's a quote from Susan that has made its way around other news stations as well as podcasts and YouTube channels alike for, well, let me just read it. Okay. And you can be the judge. Quote, it wasn't difficult once I got to know Krista, Susan Jacket told ABC News, to like her, you know. I enjoyed her company and I just felt sorry for her dilemma for Ava's dilemma, for my dilemma, my children's dilemma, and if Tony and I are going to stay together, we have to make this work, end quote. I think it had to be harder than Susan made it out to be. Oh, yeah. I don't care who you are, if you're the most beautiful woman in whatever high school, you're going to hate or at the very least really dislike the woman that your husband cheated on you with. Yeah, either either her or it's all going to focus on him. Right. The day Krista was found by Tim Arnold and Ava was brought over to her uncle John Worthington's house, Tony was called from there and informed that Krista was found deceased and where his daughter was. Tony apparently looked at Susan and said something along the lines of, Hey, we need to go get Ava. Something has happened to Krista. This is a quote. Susan said, I said to Tony, is Krista in the hospital? Did she fall? Is she okay? How long will we have Ava? And he said, Susan, she's dead. Hmm. 
And Susan said, I, I just couldn't believe it. I was in shock. So the two head over to John Worthington's home, and they were immediately interviewed by Trooper Mason. The trooper had questioned Tony and Susan, like, where they had been that day. Mm-hmm. So Trooper Mason wants their alibis. Tony said that he had been in Pamet Harbor in the morning and later went to Provincetown. One of his children, Luke, had been shell fishing with a friend of his. Tony told Trooper Mason that he went over to his father-in-law's home shortly after to watch the Patriots game. Oh, the Patriots. So many Patriots game references. And then after that, he went home and ate dinner with his family. After that, he recounted receiving a phone call from Krista's friend, Francie Randolph, informing him that Krista was deceased. The trooper asked Tony where he was on the past Saturday and Friday as well. Tony had an answer for this, too. On Friday, he and Susan went to see the Royal Tannenbaums in Hyannis, Massachusetts, at the Cape Cod Mall Cinemas. On Saturday, the two went and saw A Beautiful Mind at the Wellfleet Cinemas just outside of Tarot. Who goes to see movies back to back like that? <laughs> that's I'm just too much. Sa- My back hurts. That is quite the alibi. Yeah, I mean, but anybody can go buy a ticket. Right. I don't know. Uh, Trooper Mason did end up following up on those spots, checking to see if there were show times for the times that Tony had told them that there were, and there was, but that doesn't mean anything. Right. We knew, like, when, you know, the shows in, the show on Morris. They always would start at the same time. a 7.15 show and a 9.15 show. Yeah. So that shouldn't have really, like, done too much there with the investigation. Mm-hmm. EMT George Malloy, who was at Krista's home after Tim Arnold called 911 and helped with Ava, wasn't exactly thrilled by Susan Jacket. Once over at John Worthington's home with Ava, Tony, and Susan, George Malloy said that Susan made a very offensive comment regarding little Ava. This made George immediately suspicious of the Jackets. Quote, from ABC, she said to me, don't listen to anything that this little girl has to say. She's a liar, Malloy said. And I'm thinking, what, what? the? Mm-hmm. I just found that to be extremely offensive when you're talking about a two-year-old, calling a two-year-old a liar, end quote. Obviously, both Susan and Tony have adamantly denied any involvement in Chris's death and the comment Susan made to George Malloy, and the tone of it did get back to her. And her reply was, quote, I felt like I couldn't get near her and I was afraid that she would reject me, being how she was, that she's with who she's with, Susan Jacket said. So I just stood there and I was kind of chatty and I said, well, you know, I came to pick up Ava, I said. And would you like to have a bath, Ava? I asked her. Once in a while, she'll tell me that she didn't like to take baths and her mother said that she actually loves baths, but sometimes she tells fibs, end quote. No, she's uncomfortable with you. Right. Right. Exactly. That's not a lie. Right. Right. Okay. Susan went on to say, I was just trying to make light conversation. I don't know how that got twisted around that I said that she was a liar or not listen to her or whatever he said. I was just trying to make conversation. How she's little and she really loves baths, but she'll say that she doesn't like them. But that was so untrue that I said that that child was a liar. She was a baby. She didn't even know how to tell a lie. End quote. We will probably never know which is true. I feel like that definitely could have been a case of someone taking something the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. Or out of context. Right. But. But at the same time. Way. Yeah, exactly. After the initial interview, Susan and Tony were both questioned or interviewed, I guess I should say, many other times regarding Krista and her murder. Both of them took polygraph tests to try and clear their names. And in these tests, a couple of the questions were, do you know who stabbed Krista? Did you stab Krista? Things of that nature. The trooper who administered the polygraph tests found no deception in their answers. A few popular media articles and other people who covered this case highlighted the fact that as each interview went on with Tony Jacket, they got shorter. So the first interview report was seven pages long. The second was three. And the last, in May of 2002, was only two pages long. I don't really understand the point here because why wouldn't they get shorter? Yeah. Like, you've said what you said. Like, you've already told them everything. Right. So, the third suspect is a trio of suspects. Toppy Worthington, Beth Porter, Ed Hall. Really? Remember how Krista found out that her father, Toppy, was essentially withdrawing a ton of his money and spending it all on Beth and her heroine Mm -hmm. and her apartment? 
She even went as far as to go to a lawyer to see if she could gain control over his money. And she told Tappy and Beth that she disapproved of their relationship. Yeah. There's some fucking motive. Yeah, I would say. It said that Ed Hall, which was Beth's other boyfriend, was living in the place that Tappy was paying for. It's also reported that between Beth and Ed, they were consuming on any given day up to 25 bags of heroin. Wow. I don't, I don't, I've never bought heroin, but I feel like it wouldn't be cheap. No, and that sounds like a lot. A lot of heroin. Ooh, okay. When Beth was given her polygraph test, she had significant physiological reactions. She was arrested shortly after her polygraph test due to possession of probably heroin. And Ed Hall was then brought in for questioning and considered a suspect as well. Beth confessed that she and Ed had spoken about how Krista was trying to take away their quote-unquote cash cow. Mm -hmm. And Tappy had apparently also threatened to cut down her little allowance, but he never actually did. Ed Hall was interviewed and claimed to have no part in Krista's murder. He did say, however, that Beth had said that she wished Krista was dead at one point. Beth said that? Yeah. Oh. Ed said that he and Beth were together on Friday. He went to Boston for drugs and got heroin, their drug of choice. But Beth was annoyed because she wanted some cocaine. She didn't want heroin that day. Okay. She had Ed go back to Boston to get her the cocaine. And Ed said that when he got back, the two stayed in and did their drugs and had themselves a little party. He actually called in from work Friday night and he was supposed to work overnights. He took the night off because he was so high. Ed said that on Sunday morning, Beth went out shopping with Toppy, and he stayed in bed until going to get more drugs, and when Beth got home, they had themselves another party. Jeez. Beth made sure to tell the authorities that she and Ed didn't have driver's license or vehicles, so how could they get to Krista's? Authorities looked into public transport, but their names and addresses were not listed on any cabs or taxis or trains or whatever. Beth and Ed both got big fat fails on their polygraph tests, though but they had the excuse that they were high. Yeah. Okay, so Toppy. The two, Toppy and Krista, definitely had a relationship that had been damaged over the years, from his alcoholism to the way he treated Gloria, his wife, and Krista's mother, to the fact that he tried selling Tiny's hut out from under her when she first moved back. The relationship was just a bit strained, to say the least. Tappy admitted that his relationship with his daughter was rocky. He told authorities that it was primarily due to Beth and the fact that Krista disliked her. He said that on Friday, well, he didn't know what he did on Friday, but he did know that he wasn't out on Friday night. So how do you know that? Yeah. So I don't know, but I do know that I didn't do this. Okay. Saturday, he went out to the ATM. He picked Beth up. He got her some new clothes and he brought her back to her place that he paid for, for her and, and her boyfriend to live there. He then went home. He went back out for coffee and a haircut and went back home again and stayed in. On Sunday, he went out for coffee and donuts and watched the Patriots game, just like everybody fucking else in Toronto. <laughs> they love their Patriots. <laughs> he went back to pick up Beth after the game, and this is when he got the phone call from John Worthington regarding Krista. Tappy ended up going back to Quincy and then home to feed his cats before going to John Worthington's home to see Ava. Tappy sounded alarm bells when he asked the police and investigators if Krista had been found on her back and if there were injuries to the right side of her face. Why would he ask that? And she was on her back and there were injuries to the right side of her face. So the police were like, what the fuck? Okay, yeah, it's fucking weird. But also, why would he ask yeah. that? Well, because you know? Tappy said that he was trying to find out if the person was right handed or left handed. Oh, okay. That was his answer when they were like, yeah. how did you know that? Hmm. So the next suspect is Keith Amato. Keith was the estranged husband of Tony's eldest daughter, Bronwyn. Apparently, Keith sometimes used Krista's outdoor shower. They were on the they were on the beach, so they all have outdoor showers. Mm-hmm. And at one time, apparently, after Krista developed this great relationship with Tony and Susan that they claimed, they would use her shower too. I think the whole outdoor shower thing is like popular in beach towns. Yeah. But if you're from the Midwest like us, you're probably like, what the fuck? (laughs) So, but anyway, so this still, this ties Keith to Krista. And apparently, reportedly, Krista had some kind of relationship with Keith. It was common knowledge that Bronwyn and Keith had marital issues. So the townspeople in Tarot knew this, of course, and they speculated. Some said that they had seen Krista and Keith out together, potentially kissing. 
We all know how small towns work, though. So this might be true. It might not be true. I feel like we have to take some of these things with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Tappy's younger sister, Diana, which would be Krista's aunt, said Krista did allude to having an affair with Keith at one point. So Keith and Bronwyn have a rocky marriage and they have one child together. Keith was said to have a violent side at times. And Bronwyn found out about Tony's affair with Krista and she after this happened and she like wasn't telling Susan, she went out to Colorado with one of her brothers and her brother's girlfriend. And while in Colorado, she got pregnant, not oh. with Keith's baby. Oh. So when Keith found out, he flipped his shit, obviously. But what he did next was he assaulted Bronwyn while oh. she was pregnant. What Keith, the fuck? Yeah. So Keith said that he had only used Krista's shower one time, and he was only an acquaintance of Krista's. He only met her a handful amount of times. So these are the suspects. Tim Arnold, Tony Jacket, Susan Jacket, Christopher Toppy Worthington, Elizabeth Beth Porter, and Keith Amato. So investigators had to weed through these seven different potential suspects. Each of them had motive, some more than others. Tim Arnold was the jaded, scorned ex-lover that couldn't let her go. Tony and Susan Jacket were the dynamic power couple whose marriage survived Tony's infidelity and secret child with Krista Worthington. Mm -hmm. Tappy Worthington was keeping up with his criminal heroin addict girlfriend's lifestyle thing. Beth Porter wanted to maintain that lifestyle, as did her other boyfriend, Ed Hall. Were they worried that Krista would get in the way of their money, quote unquote, cash cow? Yeah. And then finally, Keith Amato, the man who was supposedly having an affair with Krista and using her outdoor shower. And had battered a woman before. While she was pregnant on top of it. I mean, hmm. so I don't even know. mm -hmm. I'm not even like leaning a certain way. No, no. So which one did it? How would the investigators figure it out in this seemingly puzzle, PC, chaotic mystery similar to a game of Clue? One word, three letters. Can you guess it? Wait, one word, three? Probably not. DNA. Oh. <laughs> That's not a word. D- oh, well. <laughs> Same difference. DNA. DNA was collected from the crime scene, obviously as well from Krista's body. The only issue with this was... It didn't belong to any of those seven suspects. Uh, now what? None of them. So investigators get back to work. They cleared the people that they had once counted as suspects because the DNA didn't match. The DNA doesn't lie. Right. And they tried to narrow down their focus and set their sights on anyone else who would have come into contact with Krista. This means Krista's mailman, Krista's mechanic, wow. her garbage man, anyone who she had regular contact with. And that's who they decided to start looking into. Who knew Krista Worthington and who was around her enough to want her dead. They start looking into a man named Christopher McCowan in April of 2002. Chris was Krista's garbage man. Chris was working for Cape Cod Disposal and he was from Frederick, Oklahoma. Chris dealt with seizures that were supposedly from falling off the bed when he was a baby. He outgrew them by the time he was a teenager. He excelled at football, but he wasn't a very good student. He just couldn't get decent grades, and he really struggled academically. He ended up moving in with his grandmother, his father's mother, and she is the one who raised him for the most part. Chris was put into a special education class, ultimately, because of the academic troubles, Uh but he ended up dropping out during his senior year of high school. He did have a criminal record. He was staying out all night. He was stealing his grandmother's checks. He was just getting into a lot of trouble. So his grandmother sent him to Florida to live with Roy, his father. Now I'm going to just kind of briefly do a rundown of the criminal record that I found. On October 11th of 1990, he was charged with robbery. On July 29th of 1991, trafficking of stolen property. On July 31st of 1991, grand theft over $300, but less than $2,000. On October 2nd of 1991, burglary or attempt, no assault. On November 8th of 1991, grand theft of motor vehicle. On June 6th of 1992, battery. On April 7th of 1993, grand theft of a motor vehicle. 
And on April 21st of 1995, first degree misdemeanor, third degree felony, and trespassing. He actually went to prison after the April of 1993 charge. Before this, he had a daughter with a woman named Pamela McGuire. And once he went to prison, Pamela took their daughter and relocated from Florida to Tarot, Massachusetts. Once Chris got out, he went to Tarot too, to be closer to his daughter, obviously. But his relationship with Pamela never really reignited or anything. And he started dating a woman named Kelly DeBoer. He and Kelly had a daughter as well. However, he wasn't just with Kelly. He was with multiple women, and I guess it was common knowledge to friends and family. I don't know if Kelly knew about it, but he wasn't monogamous. He didn't want to be. It was said that he was a ladies' man, and he likes to kind of juggle his woman, and he did so often. Investigators interviewed Chris on April 3rd of 2002. He was asked if he knew Krista, if he had ever spoken to her, been in her home, etc. Chris said that he never spoke to Krista, and he had never been in her home. He was just there every Thursday because her home was on his regular route. Investigators asked for a DNA sample and he obliged, but for whatever reason, they never actually collected the DNA at the time of the interview. It's believed that maybe they weren't thinking that he was involved, so it was just kind of all a formality. Mm -hmm. They were checking everyone out who was in regular contact, so garbage man, mailman, everybody. So it seemed like they only really interviewed Chris McCowan as a formality. Right. Investigators simply thanked Chris for his time and sent him on his way. But later on, when they started running Chris's information through the database and they saw that he had a fairly lengthy criminal history that included a battery charge, this was one of the very first red flags for investigators. They didn't totally clear Chris, but they did not interview him again for two years. It turns out that he had a couple of restraining orders against him, too. I was going to say, like, the robbery charges and stuff, that doesn't make that you doesn't, a killer. That doesn't, that's, yeah. You know? In 1998, Pamela McGuire took out a restraining order on him. She stated that he threw a remote control at her and pushed her up against a refrigerator. And then in 1999, Amy, another ex, took out a restraining order on him after he shattered her car window. Kelly... The, the other woman he was dating, took one out in 2004. So after all of this and Jeez. right around the time that he was going to be interviewed again. Yeah. She said that they argued and he told her that he would break her neck if she said one more word. Oh, cool. All he got for that was jail for a couple of days and probation for domestic threats. Wow. And that is why so many women die. Yeah. On March 18th of 2004, they interviewed Chris for the second time. He was having a meeting with his probation officer, and investigators used this time to interview him. The story was similar to his first one. He never knew Krista, he never went in her home, and he was just there because of the route. Right. They did collect his DNA this time. They swabbed his cheek, and the DNA was a match. Wow. But they didn't know that for a year. Why? The Massachusetts State Crime Lab was either very understaffed or they were behind or they were backlogged or oh, some version of just all of that. It took them that long. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not 100% certain for the exact pinpointed reason, mm -hmm. but either way, it took about a year to find out that the DNA matched. It was said that the Massachusetts State Crime Lab can only compare like a DNA, like if there's a match, one case per district per month. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it's important to note now, like with that, that every single man in Tarot was asked to give their DNA during this investigation process. Wow. It's something I haven't mentioned until now, but I, I found it kind of interesting. So I want, I figured I should share it. Yeah. Obviously, Tarot wasn't a large city, but I thought that was kind of just, I mean, it was interesting. It was yeah. voluntary, obviously. They couldn't force the men to give their DNA, but it was kind of assumed that if they didn't, they may be looked at differently or even as a suspect exactly so three years after krista was murdered in her home chris's dna is a match and he is arrested he's interviewed for a third time he's read his miranda rights he signs his paperwork he gives up his rights and he says that he'll talk without a lawyer they ask if they can record it and he doesn't want it recorded supposedly so they don't they interview or interrogate him for a total of six hours, and they develop a 28-ish page report from the interview. Chris started off the third interview saying he did not know her. 
they tell him we have your DNA and then once he knows that that's why they that he's been arrested the DNA match he says quote it could have been me end quote oh excuse me right so this is what he tells investigators Friday and Saturday nights are my party nights I was at the juice bar on Friday night the 4th with my friend Jeremy Frazier there was a rap contest going on and Jeremy was in it Video surveillance does show them at the juice bar around 7 p.m. on the 4th of that Friday. Chris says that he was very heavily intoxicated and that he doesn't remember anything after the juice bar, but that he woke up in his home the next day. Investigators were like, you got to have some idea of what happened. You can't just leave me there, you know? Mm -hmm. So they kept pressing, like, you have to remember, you have to remember. There's no way you just blacked out. You can black out. But so they kept pressing it until Chris said that Jeremy drove him to Krista's so Chris could have sex with her. And then they left. Oh. Investigators asked what time they were there. And Chris said between 1.15 and 1.45 a.m., like Friday into Saturday. Jeremy apparently was going through her things while he and Krista were having sex. And Krista found out, like she heard him or she saw or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Krista started getting mad and she called Jeremy out. So Jeremy and Chris leave and go outside. Krista was following them, calling after them to give her back her things. And Krista then went in and potentially was going to call the police. So Jeremy went back in, according to Chris, and Chris stayed outside. When Jeremy came out, he said that he beat Krista up. Investigators told him to repeat that story. That's a common tactic. Like, mm-hmm. they make you keep repeating it see to if see if there's any discrepancy. Changes, yeah. This time, Chris said when Krista came outside, Jeremy hit her twice in the face before Krista went back in and maybe went to call the police. And Jeremy told Chris, I'm going to do her. And then he went inside. Chris supposedly waited outside for 10 minutes and then Jeremy came back outside. Jeremy then kicked the door in to make it look like a robbery. Investigators say, Okay, tell us that again. Mm-hmm. This time, Chris says, Krista followed Jeremy and Chris outside. Jeremy hit her. But this time, Chris says that he also hit her. In this story, Chris says, quote, She confronted Jeremy. Jeremy beat her. He beat her. We put the boots to her. I can still hear her hit the ground. She hit the ground hard. End quote. And then they all go back inside somehow. Chris said that he watched Jeremy kill Krista with a butcher's knife and then put the knife, Krista's home phone, and her purse inside of a black shirt, and then the two of them left. Investigators told Chris that they don't think he had an accomplice. But speaking of Jeremy Frazier, the guy that Chris said was there, Jeremy admits that he was at the juice bar with a friend named Sean and with Chris. They went to an after party where there was a fight, and Sean and Jeremy went back to Sean's house, according to Jeremy. They didn't know where Chris was. Sean later told authorities that Jeremy was with him all night after first saying he couldn't remember that night. So with Jeremy having an alibi with Sean now, Chris McGowan was without a doubt the murderer, right? I guess. October 2006 was the trial. Christopher McGowan pled not guilty. And this time, alongside his attorney, Robert George, He has another new story. The story now is Chris was not at Chris's home on Friday night. He was just there during his normal route on Thursday when Krista asked him to please come inside and look at her Christmas tree. Supposedly, Krista wanted to know if he could take the tree out to the truck for her. Chris said that they had consensual sex on the floor of her living room. He said Ava was not in the house or at least not anywhere that he saw. He said that he does not remember telling the police that he was there on Friday. He said that he had been playing video games, smoking weed, using cocaine and Percocets before his interview with the police. Robert George also argued that his low IQ played a part in pinning this on Chris. Mm. He said Chris wanted to just please the investigators and that he was coerced into saying the things that he said. I mean. Which we know happens. It does. I don't know if it happened here, but we know that it has happened without a doubt. Robert George also said that he didn't agree with the jury selection for his trial, for Chris's trial. Mm -hmm. He wanted more working class people with people of other races than just white as well. Uh, Yeah. The prosecution showed shocking photos and they focused their case on the state of Krista and Ava. They showed the DNA and focused on that alone with Chris's ever-changing story that did not look good for him. Right. 
Robert George, Chris's attorney, said the six-hour interview, that the, the initial interview that Chris didn't want them to record, supposedly, mm-hmm. should have been a 400-ish page report, and it was 28. Wow. Mm-hmm. The defense essentially said, Chris is not intelligent. He has a low IQ. Police told them what they wanted to hear, and Chris fed it back. I was just going to say, I wonder if they were just asking him leading questions right. and he was going right. along with it. Right. Chris, basically the defense was saying that Chris thought if he told them what they wanted to hear, he could go home. Back on that Thursday, before that weekend when Krista was killed, Chris made a phone call to his boss while on his route. He had told his boss that he was at Krista's house and she wanted her Christmas tree taken, and if and he asked if he could. His boss said that he could go back on Monday with a bigger truck. The boss's name was Don Horton. He said it was on a Thursday that he called him, but he wasn't sure what Thursday that was. During the trial, a man named Gerard Smith testified. He said on the Saturday before all of this happened, he was walking and he saw a dark color SUV leave Krista's driveway crazy fast. The defense said that he was the real murderer, that whoever was driving that dark-colored SUV was the real murderer. Gerard Smith testified that the man was Caucasian with darker-colored skin, brown hair, and an oval face in the dark, large SUV. Chris's fingerprints were not at the scene. The sperm, the tails, like, okay, the DNA that they found on Krista, the sperm, the tails of the sperm, were gone. So the sperm could have been there for more than a day or two. Oh. They were, like, disintegrating. So basically the defense was saying that Chris didn't necessarily have sex with her on Friday or Saturday, which is when they are saying Krista died. Mm-hmm. That it could have been on Thursday, like his story, with the consensual sex in the living room. Yeah. And then someone came after that and killed her. Right. So Chris was wrong place wrong time yeah type of deal that's what that's the case that they're building okay the other thing is the other so they had collected dna from two parts of her body vaginally and then also the other dna was saliva that was found on her body and it was like maybe from kissing or something I, they, they they didn't say mm-hmm. but so unless she hadn't showered since thursday that dna wouldn't be there yeah Jeremy Frazier also testified, and he faltered quite a bit during the cross-examination. He said that he couldn't remember where he'd been after the juice bar, but they basically fed him the info, is what he said. Yeah. He said the state police fed him info. Sean said Jeremy was more intoxicated than anyone, and Sean was nervous, and he asked him to crash at his place. Sean testified and said the exact same thing, that he was at his place. So while this while the trial is going on, we have some jury room drama. Mm. I guess I should say jury room issues is probably yeah. a better word for it. A man named Robert Lyon told ABC journalists that he had spoken to a person who knew what was going on in the jury room, who basically had the intel. Ooh. He said that evidence was playing a key for them, that race was not playing a factor. And there was a woman named Roshanna on the jury and she came forward saying there was racial prejudice going on in the courtroom Mm -hmm. one of the jurors said that they feared chris because he was black oh that's if that's not racial prejudice right um now there were two black people on the jury at this point Mm -hmm. and roshana was one of them the other black person according to roshana on the jury said quote that is why i don't like black people End quote. Two other jurors backed up Roshana's statement. So it's not like, I mean, what? why would she lie about it in the first place? But yeah. if multiple people are saying that this other person said that, that's happening. Right. That, that's, that's, that's not okay. No, replace them. <laughs> right. And get they it going. Get, Come on. Exactly. They didn't replace them. Of course not. Chris's legal team tried to appeal. The judge said big, the words big and the words black were, quote unquote, just descriptors, end quote. Okay, they're a lot more than just descriptors. Context. Yeah. Big can be a descriptive word. Yeah. Black can be a descriptive word, but not in that context. No. They're talking about black as the color of the skin. Mm-hmm. And if Chris did it, that's not a fair trial still. Yeah, right. If he did it, if he didn't do it, 
it's not the whole thing was Mm -hmm. a wash right rachel huffman was removed during the deliberation she was apparently talking to her jailed boyfriend telling him about the jury room now as far as i know she wasn't one of them who was in the rest of the jury like the issues that were going on this Mm -hmm. was just a separate thing so at the conclusion of the trial chris ended up being found guilty on all charges wow He didn't testify at all, but he did make a statement prior to the sentencing. He said, quote, I feel very sorry for the Worthington family, Krista's daughter and Krista, but all of this time I've been innocent, end quote. Chris received three life sentences without the possibility of parole. Wow. He ended up firing Robert George, the attorney he had for the trial, and he hired Gary Pelletier. They tried getting an appeal based on inadequate counsel during the trial period. They say that there is reasonable doubt of his guilt. And I I think so. That's true. How was there not reasonable doubt? I don't think that I, if I were on the jury, that I would be able to convict. No. I mean, that's... There's no way that there haven't been other murders in the history of the United States when there was someone else's DNA in them. Right. So Gary Pelletier feels like the trial should have been moved due to the media interest. Mm-hmm. They also argued that Rachel shouldn't have been removed. The, the, they thought that she would be a juror who wouldn't have said guilty, although later on it was discovered that she was going to be that that wasn't going to be the case. But either way, they felt that she shouldn't have been removed for talking to a boyfriend who was in jail because he couldn't impact the case. Yeah, that's true. I Yeah. Now, Jer- one more quick little note about Jeremy Frazier. Phone records from 2002 show that there was a 978 phone number called often. He said it was his own pager and he was calling it because he lost it a lot. Jeremy called it 36 times the weekend that Krista was killed. Wow. During the trial, it was found out that they never subpoenaed those records. There was a call at 12.03. It was an incoming call from state police. Trooper Mason said that he had no idea what that call would be about Mm -hmm. on January 5th. Yeah. At 12.03 in the morning. Defense is still trying to determine if that 978 number truly is a pager number or if it's a landline number. In 2017, Jeremy was accused of sexually assaulting a five-year-old. He wasn't convicted. Jeremy was living with the child's mother, and the father of the child was thought to maybe have coached the kid to say this. He He was found innocent on all charges. But the reason I bring this up is because the defense is saying that he might be a police informant. Oh. Why else would the state police call him? That's true. There's no other reasonable explanation for that. If this was true, in theory, of course police would protect him. Yeah, that's true. And give him an alibi. Wow. One last quick note on Chris, who is still incarcerated. He got married to a woman named Leslie while in prison. Oh. And Leslie knew him prior to the conviction and started visiting him and sending letters and maintains the fact that he would never harm a fly. Yeah. She knew him before and he is a gentle giant. And that is where I'm going to end the Krista Worthington murder case because that's where it ends. I don't know how to feel. I don't know how to feel either. There's, There's so many. I think that they're going to get that i think they're going to get a new trial yeah eventually i don't know what it's going to take it's going to take the right team there is reasonable doubt what's to say he he didn't have sex with krista on thursday or even friday right or even saturday and then she died saturday you know by the hands of someone else we don't know if tim was really at that house do we i mean so what if he saw it because he was peeking in fucking windows and shit right what if he saw them having sex You heard how pissed off he was. Right. You know, I don't know. There's a few things that I thought about when I was thinking about all these people. Yeah. There's no doubt that Chris had sex with Krista. His DNA is on her and in her. Tim Arnold, he could have seen them having sex. He was clearly stalking her. Yeah. Very clearly stalking her. Tony and Susan Jacket, I don't believe that they would have done it. Yeah, I wasn't... That was my main thing with them. What you said about Tim was, I don't think... Tony Tony had six children. Right. They were all alive and well and loved him and they were on good terms with him, which tells me that they he was treating his children well. Right. I think if he was going to kill Krista Worthington, he would have found a way to do it when Ava was with him. 
or not in the home by herself. Right. A parent who is a decent parent and loves their child, like I think he loved Ava or loves Ava, would not have left a two and a half year old in a home unattended for 36 hours. And it's not even like Tony found her. Mm -hmm. He had no idea when she was going to be found. Right. On that alone, I don't think Tony and Susan did it. I seriously think that it could have been Beth and Ed. That, to me, that they had the biggest motive. Mm -hmm. They were, Krista made it very clear she was going to do everything in her power to get her dad away from them. Yeah. Addicts are going to do what they can to keep that cash coming. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And when you think about it, what would Chris's motive have been? Right. What? What? I really don't think that he was there the night that she got murdered. I don't know. Maybe he was. I don't know. And maybe he did do it. I don't, Maybe you know. Exactly. Maybe he did do it. I'm not saying he for sure didn't. No. But I feel like these other people have better motives. They definitely have more of a motive than Chris McCowan. I wish we knew if the police had looked into if they had ever communicated before. Right. Her and... Krista and Chris, I mean. Was there if they knew each other, did they have a connection before all this? Right. Other than just like they they had consensual sex. Yeah, and he was her sanitation worker. It's a very it's a very it's a it's a hard one for me. That's so many different suspects, so many different motives, and then they they pinned it on the person that they thought they could pin it on Mm -hmm. because he was black and because he supposedly had a low IQ. Yeah. But unless completely just dis- unless <laughs> unless he did it, but yeah. you don't know, right? Man, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know what to think. And you warned me that I wasn't going to know what to think. No, no, but, I don't think anyone's going to, yeah, for sure know what to think because it's a mind fuck. Yeah, wow. I just wish that, and I know. I mean, you can't, but I wish that you could know one hundred percent, right? With this case, it's mm-hmm. it's maddening. If if Chris McGowan is sitting in jail for a crime that he didn't commit, he says he did not commit. That so many people in his in his life say that there's no way that's not him. Right. That is not his personality. He did have the battery. He charges. had and he had restraining orders against him. Ugh. Wow. Okay. Well, let us know what you guys think. Yeah. What are I'm, your opinions? I'm really curious to know what you guys think about this one because this one was quite the. Quite the ride. Wow. It really was. And I really hope, I, I, God, I hope that Ava doesn't remember any of that. Like on one hand, I want her to remember her mom. Right. And remember all, but I don't want her to remember seeing her mother like that. Yeah. It's horrible that Krista died in the way that she did, but Ava's a victim too. Right. That's really sad. Okay. Reading. Okay. Now, I mean, we got to stop talking about it eventually. Yeah. You guys tell us what you think in the discussion post in the group or on Instagram or whatever. But for now, or on Twitter, because I tweet. She tweets. But for now, Katie, reading, watching, listening, anything? I listened to today. I actually finished it in a day again. Mm. Um, The podcast To Live and Die in LA. It's about the murder of Adea Shabani. She was a 25-year-old woman, and she had moved to Hollywood. She wanted to be a movie star. She, like, you can find a picture of her online with Kanye West. Like, she was wow trying. She yeah. was getting small parts. She was doing, she was trying to live out her dream, and she was found murdered. She that was remind- missing for a while, and then they found her, so... That, in part, reminds me of Gene Spangler, who yeah. we did a Patreon episode on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know the host's name. I'm sorry. But it's his first time investigating a missing persons case or a murder. Oh, wow. And it starts off a little shaky. I'm not going to lie. Like, he does some stuff that made me kind of cringe. Mm. And I'm not an investigative journalist. But I'm like, you don't do that. Yeah. And he kind of redeems himself. And they find some answers. They actually get into a Google account and find someone's every movement for years because your phone you know your phone is constantly tracking everything that you do and everywhere you go right and i don't know it's it's pretty good it ends up being good and interesting that's yeah that's wow yeah Mm -hmm. and that's i'm not really doing much else i've been writing yeah and it's about it watching my shows 
Yeah. What about you? Do you have anything else to talk about? I know we um, are recording both of these on the same night. So for the Krista Worthington case, I've had to listen to a lot of podcasts and then read those two books that I talked about on part one. Mm-hmm. I also started the Uncover season six, Satanic Panic, that you told me about. Oh, yeah. I'm only on like episode one. Mm-hmm. But it just seems very strange to me. Yeah, keep going, though. Yeah, that whole thing is very, like, how, like, why, how, I don't, how. Well, it didn't happen. You know? It didn't happen. Right. It's like, how how do you, I don't know. But if you keep going and explain, it kind of explains, like, the psychology behind Um, how that happens. It's so weird. I know. It's weird. It's, that's, that's the only way to really put it. It's just very strange and weird. I also started the podcast Route 29 Stalker, which is from Watts Creative Studios. I'm very, just very, very barely. Is that like fiction or? No, that one is a true one. It's about, yeah. Yep. That one is a true one. Route 29. Route 29 Stalker. Stalker. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm, um, I haven't, I have not been able to finish Synthetic Love yet just because of time. Right. But I love it. I love that book. Yeah. I love that book. I got it. I haven't yeah. started you, it, but I You're going to love it. It's yeah. just, it's so weird and quirky and just strange. Yeah. It, I, and it's, you know, you guys know we've talked about Synthetic Love and, and Christina Hart a million times on this podcast, but uh-huh. she is an amazing author, an yeah. amazing writer. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, whenever I read anything about her, I'm just blown away because I'm like, how do you know how to word things like that right yeah. it drives me nuts but like it's, i think it's she awesome. went to college i think she went to college too <laughs> she reads a lot of books yeah. <laughs> all right guys if all you right. want to send us an email you can do that at cruel and unusual the pod at gmail.com look at our instagram at cruel and unusual the pod i tweet she tweets at cruel unusual pod cruelinkmedia.com has merch That's show fun. notes source material patreon stuff and join our facebook group for the love of fucking God. <laughs> Please. That is Cruel and Unusual, colon, colon the, the group. group. On good old FB. <laughs> All right. Love ya. Love you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.